my anxiety or my tendency toward rule following. It's just that at the 19 week ultrasound, NOLA was measuring 15 weeks. And basically from there we were off script. When she finally got to come home three months after she was born, she was only three and a half pounds still. I always say four pounds, but Rochelle reminds me that I'm wrong. They had told us she wouldn't be released until she was four pounds. And then all of a sudden they were arranging discharge paperwork and I was installing a car bed because she was too small for the tiniest car seat. And we were rolling an oxygen unit around our house wherever she went. And there was no book for any of it. We didn't know when she would crawl or walk or talk or if she would. As her pediatrician told us at her first appointment, Nola's just gonna be on her own curve. Which can be a scary place to be. At age 24, I had graduated from one school and dropped out of another, and I was pretty sure that neither had anything to do with what I was gonna do with my life. And it felt already too late to start anything else, and I just kind of figured, like, I'm done. I failed at life. At 33, I had given up on ever being a parent, and I was making peace with that, and at 34, I was suddenly an old dad. And I kept doing the math, I keep doing the math, to know how old I'll be when she drives, and when she graduates, and when she's my age. In the fall, Nola will start second grade, and I'll be the age that my dad was when I graduated high school. And I don't know what that means, but I know it makes me feel like I did something wrong along the way, like I missed a benchmark somewhere. There might not be a book, what to expect when you're expecting a 41-year-old, but there's definitely a script I'm supposed to stick to. And I'm pretty sure it means like fully funding an IRA for the last 15 years instead of putting something in at 30 and then moving to Chicago and living off one income. I don't think that's what I was supposed to do. We did. There are expectations. There's pressure for life to look a certain way. And, and if you deviate from that, you're going to feel it. If you drop out or you have a kid or you lose a kid or you don't want kids or you get sick or you're chronically ill or you don't find a partner or you don't want a partner or you can't get pregnant or you have an abortion or you change careers or you retire early or you don't retire at all or you go back to school or get divorced or come out or transition or have a kid with special needs or do anything at all unexpected if you end up on your own curve for any reason, you're going to hear about it. It's what the queer theorist Elizabeth Freeman calls chrononormativity, the script, the pressure to do certain things at certain times, to make your life fit a particular pattern, to crawl at eight months and find your own insurance by age 26 to get married, have a kid or two, and then make sure they do it just the same way. Chrononormativity. The thing that makes you feel like if you did it any other way, you did something wrong. Nicodemus feels like he's doing something wrong. In this story from the Gospel of John, Nicodemus comes to Jesus under cover of darkness because he's afraid to be seen. 
He's a leader of the community, a teacher, an example, a rule follower. He has it all together. He's hit the benchmarks. He's on script, but recently he's been considering taking like just a tiny step off course, maybe. He's been listening to this other teacher, Jesus. He's been watching the things that he does, turning over tables and telling money changers to get a new career, healing people who have been sick for years and giving them a new, need, a new lease on life, making water into fine wine at the end of a party so the good stuff got served after everyone was already drunk. It's totally backward, not normal, but interesting. Interesting enough to bring Nicodemus to his door to hear more, but only at night. And when he finds Jesus, he tries to kind of ease into things, to butter him up a little bit, one teacher to another. Rabbi, he says, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these signs you do apart from the presence of God. But Jesus ignores the compliment, ignores basically everything Nicodemus says, and cuts right to the middle of the conversation, completely out of order, just abrupt, rude. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born again which is a weird response to what Nicodemus has said. But then that's why people like this guy. He says weird things. Only this particular weird thing sounds to Nicodemus like Jesus is telling him to start over at his age with all that he's accomplished, with a, with a life that looks the way his does, so successful, so normal. So he gives Jesus a chance to clarify. How can anyone be born after growing old? Can one enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born? It's, it's out of order. It's way off the curve. And Jesus, seeing how confused he is, says, Don't be astonished that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it chooses, and, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Which again seems like, not an answer to any of Nicodemus's questions. Nicodemus is talking about the shape of a human life and Jesus is on him about meteorology, but, but this time he's actually right with Nicodemus. He's telling him, your life can either be shaped by the rules, by the benchmarks, by the book, or by the wind. Pneuma is the Greek for wind, it also means spirit. You can follow the script, he's saying, or you can follow the spirit. You can have an orderly life that traces the bell curve, or you can have the life that God has made for you. The life that blows unpredictably. You, you just hear it and respond. You don't know where it's come from, you don't know where it's going, but you follow it. Jesus knows what Nicodemus has come for, hidden by the dark, hoping he can come close to that power, but not in a way that disturbs things for him, not doing anything that risks his chrononormativity merit badge. He knows there's something there, but it's scary, not knowing what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to be, when you'll check things off or if, 
Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you're right. When you said no one can do these signs apart from the presence of God, you were right. There is something here that is powerful and life-changing, but you can't get there by doing what's expected of you. No one ever did anything interesting following the script. The presence of God is off the charts, not, not a tiny step in the dark, but the most radical step you can imagine, starting over, even at your age. Yes, it's scary, but it's also liberating. It'll, it'll free you to become the one you were made to be, to chart your own curve. So choose. You can be normal or you can be you. Freeman calls the antidote to chrononormativity queer time. She says that queer people have so long been denied access to that normative timeline that they claim the freedom to go off script. They followed their dreams and desires onto their own curves. Since normal life wasn't available or wasn't interesting, they opted for something better, fuller, more beautiful, a life that was not simply the average of other people's lives, but one that was uniquely their own. Having learned to ignore the voices that say, this is how it should be done, they were free to listen to the voice inside saying, why not like this? It's a life, among other things, that doesn't have to outgrow joys on a schedule because they aren't respectable or adult enough. One, one study of middle-aged queer people in Australia showed that they were much more likely than their peers to do things like play music or go to dance parties. Going off script makes room for joy and for play and passion and music and art and friendship and discipleship. For all the things a normative life is too small to contain, it makes room for listening to the spirit, blowing in directions that we can never predict, tossing out the book, queering the timeline. That night, Nicodemus leaves disappointed. He's not ready for a radical step. He knows that if he makes that kind of deviation, he's gonna hear about it. So he slips back out into the night like it never happened, back on track. We see him a few chapters later in a meeting with the other leaders and they're angry about Jesus and they're plotting against him. And Nicodemus kind of tries quietly speaking up, it doesn't go over well, and he quickly backs down. We only see him one more time in the story, all the way at the end. Jesus, this teacher, with all that power, has died. His curve got cut off abruptly by people who didn't like the shape of it. Sometimes that's what it takes a reminder of how short our stories turn out to be, too short to live them on someone else's terms. It's enough for Nicodemus, at least, to take that first radical step. He meets up with Joseph of Arimathea, whom the story says was also a secret disciple. And they go. They go to the authorities, to the people that they had worked alongside, the people they were afraid to hear from, and they ask for Jesus' body. 
Nicodemus buys $100 worth of burial spices, and they wrap their friend in cloth, and they put him in Joseph's family's plot. They do it all at midday in full view of everyone, the biggest step they can imagine. No turning back. Scary, but liberating. Listening to the wind, the spirit, moving in a new, unseen direction in their lives. Maybe Nicodemus wishes he had listened sooner, while Jesus was still alive. Maybe he's tempted to beat himself up for sneaking back to his orderly life in the dark that first night. Maybe he regrets all those years he spent following someone else's script. But by now, he's starting to understand that it is never too late to start being the person God made you to be. So he guesses he will start all over. Just the way Jesus said, even at his age, born again.